Welcome to Melbourne Park and the first Grand Slam of the year, the Australian Open. I'm Chris Bowers and I'm delighted to say that joining me on this week's ATP podcast is the former player Jill Cravis and my AO Radio commentator colleague Peter Mercato. And we are sitting on the edge of Garden Square. It's a bit windy today, so we're actually under the lip of the brand new Centrepiece building, which is, uh, we're hoping is going to give much better sound quality than if we were in the middle of Garden Square, where you might pick up a bit of the wind, but... Uh, Excited to be here, guys? Well, it's just down the road for me. Nice little 15-minute trip in, but it is lovely to welcome the world back to Melbourne Park. It, look, 900,000 people they're expecting to be here. They had a, the qualifying week was ticketed as well and all sorts of different things going on. So bigger and better and I think a lot more comfortable for everyone and a lot better too because the time we're recording this, you mentioned it's windy and a little on the cool side. The day before was around 37 degrees. About 37 degrees followed by a top of 22 and at the moment I suspect it's about 16. Jill, how are you enjoying the heat? Um, I don't miss it, that's for sure, but uh, I'm glad it is cooler and windier today. And I'm right down the road too, even though I'm not from here, but I've been staying with the same family for 24 years, if you can believe that. So I do walk in sometimes, it's about a 40 minute walk, so it was a pleasant walk this morning. But I was also here for qualifying week, and it was a fantastic week. The weather was perfect. The crowds were fantastic. Kids day also. Um, So that was really exciting to see. But it's it's always great to come back. Well, I hope you're going to give your family a long service medal next year for the 25th time you stayed with them. (laughs) Yes, they're they're long overdue for that medal, that's for sure. We'll get on to previewing the Australian Open in a few minutes' time, but uh, we're going to spend the first part of this week's podcast talking about the big story this week and the issues arising from it. The Netflix documentary, Breakpoint, uh, you may have seen the first five issues which are out or um, watch them, listen to them. This is not a series made for the tennis community. I think it's important to say that. Those of us, the three of us around this table, and I suspect everybody listening to this podcast is very much part of the tennis community. It's aimed at bringing new people in, very much along the model that uh, Netflix did with Formula One, their Drive to Survive series, which did, in fact, bring a lot more people in. In that case, it was a lot more um, female supporters of Formula One. I think uh, tennis does well on the gender balance here but there's obviously markets that uh, tennis hasn't attracted and it's an interesting approach to go via a Netflix documentary. I, mean, I like the idea I mean the thing for me is also you're right it's not for necessarily the hardcore tennis fan because they know the stories and what happened and everything like that but I think that to humanise a little bit I mean yes we had Kyrgios as the first um, player that was profiled but then we also had Matteo Berrettini and Isla Tomljanovic in, in the second episode um, Paola Bedosa will be coming up, Maria Sakkari. These players who might be obviously known to the hardcore tennis fan, but not necessarily outside of that. And a chance to grow the base to get a sense of what the personalities are like for the players. But also I think the biggest thing is, for me, and for to get an idea of what goes on behind the scenes. So we might see a match and see what happens, but we don't see the aftermath of that. We don't see them travelling around. We don't see the... You know, players who might who are in a relationship and then they don't see each other for months on end because the two has diverged. You know, that sort of thing I think is fascinating because it humanises a little bit, but also gives an indication that even though you might be right at the very top, it's a hard slog travelling around the world all year. You mentioned personalities. I mean, the whole series is based around personalities. I mean, Jill, do you feel that focusing on personalities is the way to bring more people into tennis? 
I do like that. Um, I think that's what people want to know is not just the tennis personality. They want to know the person behind the scenes. And I think it's a great concept. I think it worked for Drive to Survive, the Formula One Netflix series. Everyone is obsessed with Formula One now after that series, even non race car driving enthusiasts. So I I think it's a great approach. I think it's very rare that you get to see that, that access that Netflix is able to see and just be able to follow the players around. So you get an idea of what goes into their day in and day out experience of having to work hard, having to get ready, having to prepare. Um, Because it's nonstop and tennis is all year. There's really no off season. You can play every week of the year if you want to. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. We try and do our best to give a little bit of insight, especially as a former player player about um, how hard it was and how difficult it is the the time it takes to get to this success stage where you are. So I think it's great. I think it's um, great that we're getting an insight into the into the personalities of, of the players a little bit more. I mean, it's fascinating when you think of the effort that it takes to be a top level player, that you're doing this from the age of what, six, seven, eight, at least from 10. You're immersed in it. If you listen to some of the juniors talking, it's quite clear that they are totally comfortable in the tennis world. And yet that doesn't necessarily translate to an interesting spectacle unless they happen to play a really great match. And here we have, for example, there's a lovely little scene where Berrettini's talking to his grandmother uh, over a a meal around the, the, the dining table. And you know, photographs of Kyrgios when he was 7, 11. I found myself thinking, oh, that's who Kyrgios was in those days. Now, does that mean that a fan is going to come in and say, oh, when's Berrettini playing? I want to watch him. He's the guy that talks really nicely to his granny. Or, oh, I want to see that kid who was a... He describes himself as a potato for 10 years, Kyrgios. You know, I want to see him, not because he's the guy that throws his rackets, but because I've seen him on Netflix. Is that the way in to promoting the sport of tennis? I think so. I think I I describe it as, you know, you mentioned that it's a series not necessarily for the hardcore tennis community. I describe it as like the theatre-goer. So, yes, you watch and you'll dabble in a number of different sports. And, for example, here in Australia, the Australian sports fan will, will lock into the Australian Open, but maybe not anything on either side. And they might be the ones that when they're wandering around the grounds here and they look at the order of the schedules of play and go, oh, actually, that's that guy on the... We're going to go and watch him. I think there'll be a bit of an uplift there. And hopefully it's a matter of following them around the tour to actually see how they go. Okay, so here's a question. Is tennis ready for a massive influx of new fans? Supposing this Netflix documentary has a real success. And if you take the first edition, uh, the first episode, it showed a lot of rackets being smashed. Now, within the tennis world, we will say, oh, that's bad behaviour. And, of course, players will get... a uh, a code violation but if that's a way of selling tennis through a Netflix documentary is tennis ready for a whole new group of people or are we too conservative with a small c in the tennis world I I think tennis is ready and just to talk a little bit about the the racket smashing I feel like um you know Netflix to me, I think they did a great job with Drive to Survive. I think they'll do a great job with this. But I think you'll probably get a better insight if we see the human side of the players of maybe where that emotion is coming from a little bit more often, which I think is going to be huge. I think people – I mean, tennis is a frustrating sport. I think Joe Simone just came out with a book too that um, – it's in French, but it translates to the title of the book to the sport that makes you crazy, which it really, it really does. And I think we'll get a better – people might 
relate a little bit to be like, okay, now I know why, where all that emotion is coming from. It may not be from the match. It may be something, something that happened before, something that happened throughout their lives or whatever. And I think it's important to get that insight. I mean, I related a lot to when I watched the Olympics, we don't know, I don't know a lot of the athletes from curling or from biathlon or whatever, but you get a five minute snippet of a background story and all of a sudden I'm immersed in how they're doing and curling and biathlon or whatever sport it is that I don't follow throughout the year, but I'm paying attention now. And I'm hoping that's what this does is people can relate some of what they go through maybe to what um, some of these players are going through and get them immersed in the sport a little bit more. Just to contextualise, just specifically to the the, the Netflix thing, because obviously the, the racket smashing was primarily done by one player who they were profiling at the time. Um, and the thing was, you know... We, well, they showed the Baghdadis um, yeah, smashing did. from a That's few right. years ago. So Smashings. Smashings. Multiples. He did three in one go, yeah. <laughs> yeah and got bag. one warning for it. The whole bag disappeared. Anyway, but just to contextualise, it was more about... You know, curios and what it, what's happening in those moments. I thought that was the beneficial thing here. That sort of contextualised. It doesn't make it right, by the way, but you just got some sense of it. I need to let it out. This happens. There's a moment that upsets me, and then I to, and I need to work on that. And they had his manager talking about, you know, the fact that this is what happens, and this is. So I thought that was was interesting. I don't think that needs to be contextualised a little bit. It wasn't just racket smashing for the sake of it, but it was in context of you do this, why do you do this? Okay, but it begs the question, is tennis too nice? I mean, if you go back to the 1980s, there was a Wimbledon semi-final where uh, Jimmy Connors said to John McEnroe at a change of ends, you know, my three-year-old son behaves better than you. Uh, You had a quarter-final, I think, between Pat Cash and Boris Becker where they were snarling and growling at each other and they clearly didn't like each other. Does tennis need a bit of a needle that the the very dignified era of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray has sort of taken away? In my opinion, I don't think so. I know people, a lot of people are probably not going to agree with me. They like having like a, I don't know, a controversy or whatever you want to call it. But I, I don't know. Every time I speak to the players or I interview them, my first initial reaction is like, oh, my God, they're so nice. Then I just want them to do really well. So I'm more of a pro-nice You player. want everyone to win. I want everyone to win. I do. I really do. I have this problem. I'm like, they're, they're really nice. But I think I don't necessarily – I like seeing the fire and the passion and the emotions from players for sure. I think – it draws you in. I, I think, you know, you, that's what gets you excited as a fan is when you see the fire in them and the passion in them. I don't necessarily feel, for me, I don't feel like I need to see, quote, a bad boy or whatever it is. I like seeing that, you know, friendly competition, seeing them go after it. And at the end, seeing the camaraderie between the players, that's what I like to see. Uh, yeah, I think you've just uh, put my local tennis club hat on and say you know a lot of people watch who play play the sport and do we necessarily want that trickle down effect that can happen I mean we're seeing kids doing underarm serves now badly but they'll get there Uh, but then you want do we want that sort of behavior to to push its way down you know where we're berating umpires or looking to start you know be aggressive unnecessarily towards fellow players and things like that that'd be the thing that I would caution so as the uh, chair of St Mary's Tennis Club in northern Melbourne, uh, do you see people, um, ad- in particular the youngsters, adopting things they've seen on television? Yeah. Do you, do you see smash rackets? Or? Oh, yeah. And we also see, uh, yeah, the big one is the underarm serve. 
that's the big one for me is that we're seeing that they want to just try it out and see how they go but the trouble is they lose every point because it's like we're aware of it now but do they then draw the conclusion that this is not helping their game no not yet because they're young but anyway but it's just they do see that and I think also when we get to the stage of where they, they're playing formal competition where it's umpired and everything like that the aggression towards umpires and that's been the thing with, with Nick that I've said it's like well do everything else that you do because it's great but no, no umpire stuff anymore, and I hate that conversation that goes on. And it's, again, the trickle-down effect. So we just need to be a little bit careful with that sort of stuff. Obviously, we need the personality. We need the passion, as, as Jill described it, but not the you know, overarching aggression. OK, but if we're focusing on the personalities, where does that leave the unremarkable player who maybe from the age of 7, 8 has been hitting 100 forehands and 100 backhands a day, perhaps at their tennis academy, um, who is really solid, no technical weaknesses doesn't set the pulses running of spectators but is just good is their role just to be the sort of the foil the like the straight man in a comic duo um whereby we we we, we cheer for the flair players well it's well firstly they probably wouldn't be a, a contender to be in the the series anyway the documentary no series. but they're still valid on the tennis tour and they absolutely. might be in a grand slam final absolutely and also some um players are more suited to having cameras in their face 24-7 than others so you might get the wrong impression if they're not comfortable, particularly in the early stages so it'll be interesting, obviously Carlos Alcaraz isn't here um, playing unfortunately, it'll be interesting if they start following him around and he's obviously a young young player to see how he goes with you know that sort of pressure coupled with you know camera crew following you around the whole time I think it's, it's there's going to be personalities all over the place, there'll be people that'll surprise us I would say that you think, oh, they've hit a thousand balls at the academy. They've, that's all they've done in their life. But they might have some really interesting things to say. I just think it's going to be a balance. I, mean, I don't want to imply that hitting a thousand balls a day at the academy is a bad thing. If, if anything, you can only be a flair player if you know that your technique is going to stand up under pressure. But I just wonder whether by focusing on the personalities, we're actually almost dissing an awful lot of very honest professionals on the tennis tours. Well, I think it'll be interesting how the fans um, accept it and perceive it because I also feel like that could be a pro to have that that approach as well where you're watching a player. Maybe that's a little bit more understated. I think there can be an appreciation for that as well, that you don't have to have the sort of massive outgoing personality. There are going to be introverts. Like Peter said, there's going to be different personalities. Not everyone's going to be the same. And I almost think by showing some of the personalities, whether it's in the documentary or seeing the fire, the ones that are more explosive fire passion on the court compared to ones that more understated, I feel like that could be a good contrast. And I feel like for those tennis fans or non-tennis fans, I think if you see the the different personalities, and I don't know, to me, I feel like there could be more of an appreciation for all the different kinds of players and people that are out there. The sport needs figureheads. The, they need those players who do stand out because they're the ones who will bring the, play, the, the spectators into the stands. They're the ones that the tournament directors want to get, that sort of thing. And obviously that's not going to be everyone. I mean, we've seen you know, Serena at the top of the, the women's game for so long, such a draw card, such an inspiration, and a figurehead. Maria Sharapova, the same. Obviously we've had the, the big three and the big four on, on the men's side. We've got players like Kyrgios. We've seen the younger players finding their voice too and their personalities. They're the ones that are going to bring it in and because they're there, they'll bring everyone else up as well. So it's not going to be everyone who's going to be that huge draw card. And it's where that mixture of those people right at the top with the and everything like that, 
allow, you know, opens it up to those who are just, you know, your good, honest players who, who play week in and week out. Let me introduce another element to this. If we're looking to promote tennis, what about the role of team events? We've just had the United Cup in the past week. The Davis Cup has split from its uh, current sponsor and is going to look for new formats for 2024. I've interviewed plenty of players over the years who've said my recognition back home comes from having done well in team events because what really counts is playing for the country. Well, throw the Olympics in there as well. I mean, that's another opportunity. And there's so few opportunities just because the calendar is is jam-packed. But hopefully the the United Cup, which Jill and I were working on in in various cities, but as far away from each other as possible, it seems, um, were, you know, to bring those to... And they loved it. You know, the, the players really enjoy the camaraderie of being together because they don't get that opportunity much throughout the year, particularly, you know, having the men and the women together and the mixed doubles. It brought um, younger players in, so... It was based around the, the singles and doubles rankings, the top rankings, but that wasn't everyone in the team. So those who were maybe ranked outside the top 100 or young junior players had the opportunity to be with the other players from that country, the top players. So that was that was wonderful, I thought. But yeah, there, there's probably room for more team tennis. It's just how you fit it into an already jam-packed calendar and accommodate, like say, for example, the Americans or the Australians, that everyone gets an opportunity to participate as well. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I think just being a part of the United Cup, being able to work on it. I was in Brisbane. Peter, what you were in Perth. Um, I'm glad we reunited you then. Yes, I know. Um, and I've talked to quite a few players. I mean, Brisbane, we had um, the Swiss team. One of the teams was there, and Warinka was the captain. And it was just nonstop how the players appreciated him as a coach, how much he got into it, how much he was involved. I think we also had Italy. Berrettini was hugely involved, just getting up, taking over the coaching role for these youngsters that had never been at this level or had this experience before, which was awesome to see. Um, I just ran into Petra Martic um, yesterday, who was in Perth, I think, the Croatia team where Peter was. And I asked her about it, and you know, and they, she was just glowing. She she was so excited, and she said the team. She just wants more of these team events. And I said, well, how would it be different? Um, because you knew these players that were on your team, and she was like, yeah, but even with the guys, we'd see each other at tournaments. It would just be a high, but we actually got to hang out, spend time with each other, get to know each other, and it was a whole different experience. So, it was. I think it was embraced by by absolutely everyone. And and in Brisbane too, we had Poland was another team that was there. Craig Boynton was there, who's the private coach of um, Hubie Hercatch. Uh, Radwanska was the, the captain. But he it was really his appreciation, too, for being able to be that close to watch Sviantek in particular and just being impressed. Because like, you just don't get that situation that much where because Craig is with Hubie the whole time. And so to get that perspective, it'd be like, wow, like have this whole new appreciation for uh, uh, Sviantek, who's number one right now. It was it was just awesome to hear so many different views and perspectives. And I'd just watch out too, because talking about players in coaching roles, Grigor Dimitrov would be another one when he stops playing because he was fantastic for the Bulgarian team and his mentoring role um, was sensational. Yeah, I suspect also having watched that Netflix second programme, uh, Berrettini would be a much better Davis Cup player under the old format than his results on the tour suggest. I never quite got the feeling that he totally believes in himself as an individual. Put him in a team environment. Well, there's a few others who are in that boat as well. When we've seen over the years, the Davis Cup with the Jean King Cup, where that, that happens, the players think it'd be a lopsided match and it actually turns the other way. And 
that's we've seen that plenty of times. But it's also the the atmosphere that you have when you go from city to city. Uh, and for example, the Greek team was in Perth as well. Obviously, they made the semi finals, and the population of Greece in here, I mean, the the, the Perth fans embraced them, and it was like playing. They said it was like playing at home. The same thing when they got to well, Sydney. I suppose it's playing here. It's playing for an entity bigger than yourself, isn't it? And yeah. that, that can actually be the making of certain players. Um, final point on this before we leave the subject of the various issues that the Netflix documentaries uh, have raised: Does tennis tell its story as well as it should? Do you reckon? The tricky part is that it's in it's in many different sections and many different aspects and many different parts. And it's a tricky, tricky thing. We have two main tours. We have the Grand Slams. We have the ITF who run some of the team events and the lower levels. It's really hard to tell that story cohesively to get a full narrative of it. I mean, we can go through sort of as we do on this podcast, you know, throughout the year and go through the main sort of aspects of what's going on and the main sort of issues but it is hard to string that narrative together particularly when it's something that runs week in week out and as Jill said you can play every single week of the year there's a tournament on it is tricky I'm not sure how you would do that cohesively to make sure that you know everything is is captured um we do it in parts uh but I think it's something that we should be be looking at to then promote the sport as widely as possible not just to watch it but I also think it's incumbent upon the tours and, and the ITF to get people playing the sport too. Well, I, my view is I always think there's room for improvement all the time. So I feel like we can always, you know, there's always more to tell and there's always more to explore. It just reminded me of a story when, when I played on the tour. My mom's a teacher, or was a teacher. She's retired now. Um, and I was just traveling all over the place and it was hard to... Um, know where I was. I would tell her week in and week out where I was. And so she had this brilliant idea as a brilliant teacher that my mom is, um, that she was teaching a class and they started uh, teaching geography. And instead of where is Waldo, they said, where in the world is Jill Krabus? And every week they learned about a different country that I was in, the different culture. And so the kids thought it was fantastic. I mean, it was personal too, because I was her daughter, but I still thought it was brilliant. And the, the play and the, the, the children got to know, about different countries, about tennis, that this was a, this was how the tennis tour was. So I thought that was fantastic. So maybe that's something that we could explore. And there were you languishing in some godforsaken city in a poor hotel <laughs> because your mum needed to teach her, her kids about <laughs> that country. Exactly. Wow. I mean, the thing for me that tennis needs to tell its story better through the backstories. Yes. There are so many good backstories. And I, this is perhaps bigger on someone like wheelchair tennis, where understandably they want to promote this as a, a sporting tour where, you know, you focus on a player's results and how well they've done and all the rest of it. But actually the really interesting thing about the wheelchair tour is the backstory of the players, what playing tennis has actually done for them. Now, OK, you don't have the same depth of story with uh, the tennis players we've got on the main tours, but you've still got lots of really good stories. And I do wonder whether the key to tennis telling its story is that the tennis governing bodies need to develop a better relationship with the players' agents so that there is a greater responsibility on behalf of the players to serve their sport rather than just give interviews which are going to nurture the bank balance. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's all about the backstory. And I've felt that way for a really long time, especially all of us here doing interviews. We've gotten to know the players quite a bit and the coaches, even the coaches' backstories too and how they got involved, I think for me is unbelievable. I think so many players have so many stories. Um, 
And I just think it's important to tell that it's challenging with tennis because like we said, there's no off season and to have that time to be, you need the time to be able to explore and go in depth with um, these players and coaches and agents and stuff like that. But the backstory I think is what grabs people um, and, and, and gets them into the sport and gets them involved in these people's lives because that's how you relate to the players and that's how you want to follow them. You want to see what they're doing. And, and um, I just think sports, well, I think across sports in general, it's huge to be able to have that platform where you can bring people up and like and, and grasp people. The only thing I agree, by the way, the backstory is important. As long as you know, for some players, they may not necessarily want to be shackled to the backstory too. It's like you know, if someone's done something's happened in their lives and the only thing that gets reported on whenever you talk about this particular player is oh that happened or that, and it's like well no that's, that's not me anymore I'm a different person I mean yes we can reference it and yes it's got me to be known but I'm now this person and I want to move forward with that so some may be just a little hesitant in terms of saying well I just want to make sure that you know I, the right sort of backstory stuff is a thing that you know forms the narrative for me and that's why there might be a little bit of hesitation there yeah some. no fair enough I, that's a, a very respectful comment but i do think we need to bring out as much human interest as possible oh, absolutely and that's what the netflix documentary is attempting to do and the most important thing out of that documentary i'm in it just be careful it's in the second episode jill just be careful you don't blink because you'll miss it i think you're in the first one the voice was in the, the voice one. was in the first one the yes was in the second. see if yes. you can work it out folks yeah. anyway we could go on for hours about this and no doubt the debate will i suspect the jury will remain out on the effectiveness of the netflix documentary for a few months yet but uh, do go and have a look at it see what you think and in particular show it to people who aren't necessarily into tennis because those are the people it's aimed at. Coming up, we preview the Australian Open 2023. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. You're listening to the ATP Podcast with Jill Krabus, Peter Mercato and me, Chris Bowers. And it's time to focus on the Australian Open. For the second year running, we're missing the world number one. Last year, it was the global news story of Novak Djokovic's visa. This year, it's an injury to Carlos Alcaraz. But while it's really sad to miss Alcaraz and we won't get that much anticipated Alcaraz versus Djokovic match that I think we're all looking forward to, there is still masses of interest in the draw. Peter, Jill... Djokovic a year on I mean he looks almost in better shape now than he was when he was here for a few days and then had to go home I watched him in Adelaide the first week of the year it's just the level of tennis that he brings every single time is just extraordinary and saw off another challenger Seb quarter in that final and you know that he was again pushed but again the same narrative prevails that he managed to find a way through and he's done it so well and it's interesting, I was sort of looking down the draw sheet as we're chatting here, and you're used to just seeing him right at the very top or right at the better, very bottom of the draw, but he's right in the middle, as you know, the fourth seed. like, I'm not used to seeing that. But with Alcaraz having pulled out, it means he's the fourth seed rather than the fifth, yeah. which is a big difference in terms of facing big names. He, he won't have to face anyone who will really fancy their chances of beating him until the semis, and I'm not even sure whether Rude would believe he could beat Djokovic. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, but I, I like as you say, he's in great shape again. He's turned up and he's ready to go. And it doesn't matter where you put him in the draw, he's still going to be a big chance. And to think that he finished last year fifth, 
he couldn't play two of the four majors. The one he won, he wasn't allowed to count the ranking points for. He didn't play four of the eight Masters 1000s, or nine if you count Shanghai. Um, and he finished fifth. I mean, what he played was just phenomenal. It was incredible. I think, I mean, we know he's one of the best at adapting to challenges. And, and but after last year, everything that, that was thrown at him and to be able to bounce back, I think... But he, he's done that throughout his entire career. He's one that's accepted the hardships and the challenges and persevered after that so brilliantly that it, it, it surprised me, but also in the same breath didn't surprise me because he's so used to being able to bounce back and, and deal and with those what challenges, me, which is amazing. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's the lesson, the lesson in life from 100%, Djokovic yeah. is that when he has a setback, he says, OK, this is what it is. Where am I going to take the blessings? Well, I, I don't think he's the only example of that. I mean, I think... Perhaps the best one. I, Yeah, I do think sports in general do that. I, I mean, like, I'm such a huge sports fan, and tennis in particular, you're out there by yourself, and that's why I sort of like when there's no coaching as well, is you have to figure things out. That's where I feel like you learn the best that's where I feel like you grow the strongest and I think there's so many examples of players that do that that bounce back from adversity from failure from losing because honestly if you have a really good year if you win three or four tournaments a year that's a really good year so you're losing 15 20 times however however tournaments you're playing but it's incredible what was thrown at Djokovic in particular last year and the fact that he finished fifth won the tour finals of course at the end of the year also throw that in <laughs> but it was just it's just incredible and it's great to see him back in Australia well the person who cashed in last year was Rafael Nadal in that amazing final two sets to love down against Medvedev love 40 early in the third comes back and wins it in five sets Nadal has a tough opener he's playing Jack Draper who was a semi-finalist in Adelaide last week and Nadal didn't have a great ATP Cup, um, but of course this is a slam and he is so good at finding an extra gear or three when it gets to the majors. Yeah, exactly. You've got to beat him best three out of five. That's always the dynamic and we, the top players have been able to manage that so well and the younger players, because there's no other best of three out of five other than the majors, you don't get that experience. And that was the thing you know, with the players of the former generation. They had a bit more five-set tennis to play, so it does take a while to get there. But yeah, Jack Dre, I like him as a player, Jack. A big game, massive serve. He won't be scared of Nadal. Won't be scared. And I think he's, he, in 2022, um, learnt a lot about himself and learnt a lot about his game. They've been making improvements along the way and the results are showing. So... Yeah, big match on, on Rod Laver Arena, and he better be ready. But I think that the big thing for me is you can do it two sets and normally you'd be walking off, you'd be in the locker room and everyone would be saying how good you are. Then you've got to step out for that third set, and that's the big question mark for me. But then if he manages to get through that, Nadal, you look at through the draw and, and where things are sitting, and he's actually in a pretty good position in terms of his draw because he'd be able to work his way into the tournament before he faces... a. A big name, for example, Tiafo, you've got Hercatch and, and Shapovalov in that, that section. Other potential champions, Medvedev, Rude, Tsitsipas. I almost throw Yannick Sinner in there because of his big Fritz, game. I would throw Fritz Taylor in Fritz, there. Taylor Fritz, yes. I would throw Fritz in there. He's been playing exceptionally well. He's been, been playing a lot, and I, especially in the offseason. I was curious how that was going to keep going for him because you can get tired. But I think he just he loves the competition so much. He lo- he just wants to compete. He wants to play tournament after tournament. He doesn't seem to get tired. He's one that thrives in the heat. He loves the heat. So I think um, definitely throw him in there. The big question mark for me about Fritz yes. is I think back to the match he played against Djokovic here a couple of years ago when Djokovic had the abdominal tear and... 
Fritz couldn't finish him off. Um, he then lost to Nadal in the yeah, quarterfinal, well then, yeah. where um, Nadal also had an abdom- abdominal tear, ended up winning on a fifth set There's tie always break. a time that changes, though. Do you think he's ready for that? I do. I do think he's ready. I know I'm not, I was, I mean, I'm not just saying that. I know I do think he's ready. I would definitely throw him in the mix. I would throw Corda in. I have a lot. Corda could win it. Yeah, I I think Corda is definitely going to win a slam. I don't know if he'll win this one, but I'm throwing him in. Um, Yeah, I think there's a lot. Rude. I would put Rude in there. Felix had a good year last year. Yes, Peter. Sorry, you're going to run through the entire field of (laughs) Jill. I've got to get in here at some stage. But the, uh, um, yeah, that Fritz, that, that lower half of the draw, the, the bottom half, bottom quarter of the, the men's singles draw is where you will find a little bit of interest there. Because as you say, Jill, you've got Taylor Fritz there, you've got Casper uh, Ruge, you've got Zverev, Veratini. I mean, you know, he's obviously part of the Netflix thing. The momentum will build. Good memories of playing. Well, he could get tremendous support. I mean, all the people featured in the Netflix documentary might find a lot of people out sort of saying, oh, Berrettini, he's that guy who's lovely yeah. to his granny. You know, he could end up, I don't want to overwork that particular scene, but if he, if that brings out people who really do cheer for him, he could find that this is a home tournament. Yeah, and he's got, he's got Andy Murray first up, so that'll be interesting. See what Sasha Zverev brings to the table, because he's in that section too. So, I mean, that's the one that, you know, for the, the, the hardcore tennis fan, you probably draw your eye to and go, actually, who's going to be that player who's going to step up? Who's going to make that quarterfinal? in that particular section of the draw. Well, semi-final. Who's going to win that section of the draw? Well, yeah, but in the, yeah. the, just in that bottom quarter, Oh yeah. who's going to play in the, the quarterfinals? Because notionally you go, you know, is it Fritz at eight? Is it Rude at number two there? And Well, that's the projected quarterfinal. Yeah, but I think there's a few more twists and turns in there. You mentioned Sverev. I mean, there's also team uh, in as well. These are players who are a long way short of where they were after struggling with injury. And I'd throw Kyle Edmund in as well because he's in the draw too. So they've all got, you know, yeah, semi-finalist players. here five yeah. years ago. So, you know, team plays Rublev who... Hmm, you know, that'll be fascinating, but they're both in awful form, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, Zverev has, has got a, a lucky loser to, to start off with, which is probably ideal in a way for him to ease into the event a little bit. But you know, the thing for me is, I think, for those players that we've, we're talking about, is to see where they're at. I think that's the biggest thing, because I don't see them winning the tournament. I don't see them going deep into the second week. But just to get an indication of, hey, you know, you've had all this time off the tour for in, through injury. Where, where are you sitting right now? How far away are you from getting back to the top form? Is it a, a couple of weeks? Is it months? What is it that they, that's going to be the intriguing thing for me with, with these players? And in the case of Kyle Edmund, I, I, I don't think he's going to get a set against Yannick Sinner. I think that'll be a straight set. But it's just very pleasing to see how much he's been through, to see him back in the uh, first round of a main draw. I think it's really important. These players need matches if you've been out, like a Zverev or a team. I mean, teams played a little bit, and um, Edmund's now back. I think it's important to get matches. That first round's going to be so important. I think, you know, obviously you mentioned Rublev and team. That's a really tough first round, I think. But I th- the, for these players that have been out, unfortunately, for injury, I think it's important just maybe – not to have so much expectation and just go out and play. Lucky loser for Zverev, that's never an easy situation. They've had a couple matches in qualifying, so they've gotten used to the court. So they have a couple matches under their belt. That's always tricky, in my opinion, a qualifier or a lucky loser. But I think it's about being able to know, and and you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to grind if you haven't had a lot of matches, being willing to stay out there. And so to me, it's going to be interesting how those first matches go. The Australians, Kyrgios, 
Diminor, two very, very contrasting people. Um, they're the only two I would see in both men's and women's singles who might get to the latter stages. Yeah, well, particularly with Tom Lianovic not playing in the women's... Well, the top so. women's yeah. Australian in the singles is Jamie Forlis, ranked about 160. Yeah, so it's a bit of a drop-down this year, but obviously we had Ash Barty um, last year, so that sort of balances it out a little bit for a little while at least. But on the men's side, um, obviously having Demonor and Kyrgios in the same side of the same part of the draw doesn't really help things along the way. Yeah, you're right. I think it's in terms of you know contenders to go deep, um, they are the obvious ones to, to step through. But we've seen a good year from a guy like Jason Kubler, um, for example, who, you know, had that good run at, at Wimbledon and has managed to get his ranking up. If only he could get, you know, can continue that form and make sure that he's not injured. That's the key thing for him. Well, but he's come back from injury. It's, so many times. It's a good backstory. You know, six operations. Yeah, and not being spending all your time playing on clay because if you play on a hard court, you're going to be in all sorts of trouble. Now he's here and, and showing a little bit about what, what he can do. And, you know, had a good United Cup as well and they, Aussies love playing there. And you never know, you might get a few who can upset a few in the first week, but they, you're right, they'd be the two in the second week. And obviously, you know, Kyrgios and Kokonakis in the doubles. And don't discount Tanasi, uh, semi-final showing in Adelaide. He, he won the title there last year. In a good frame of mind, how will he go against Fabio Fanini? How does anyone know how to go against Fabio Fanini? But that could be a good starting point because he's in that, that bottom quarter of the draw that I was talking about. So, Jill, what do you reckon about Kyrgios? He... This time last year, people were saying, will he ever do anything? He goes and wins the doubles, and then he goes and runs the final at Wimbledon. That means that he's viewed differently this year. And I, and also after Wimbledon, I think I was curious how he was going to do after that final. And he ended up winning Washington, D.C., won the doubles in Atlanta. And so the week before... I beat Medvedev at the U.S. Open. Yeah, so I think the follow-up for that final at Wimbledon was, for the singles in particular was what I was interested in, and he followed it up well mentally. I think he did a really good job of, you know, staying strong with those expectations. Now everyone watching him see how he was going to do. So I was impressed with that. Got to the tour finals in the doubles as well um, with Kokonakis. But, I, I mean, he loves it here. I think it's going to be about him getting the crowd involved once again. I think he loves that entertainment and loves that show. And so I think that really fires him up. And I think he's just going to be excited to be back. So I think he could go deep. It be interesting to see where they put him because he loves John Kane Arena. But I suspect he's now so big, especially in the absence of other Australians, that he'll want... They'll want to put him on Rod Laver and he'll want John Kane. Well, he's going to get his first match on John Kane. We know that's already scheduled and, and ready. So uh, as he moves through the draw, I mean, <laughs> it's going to be interesting, you know, the next match because it's Umber or, Umber or Gasquet. And we know that epic match that they played on John Kane. I reckon normally it's first week. And then if you make it through the first week, you'll be on, on Rod Laver because there's plenty of good players. To, we can share the love, Chris. We'll share the love. Let's have a look at the women's draw as well. I mean, the obvious champion is Sviontek but you know she broke new ground by winning her first major on hard courts at the US Open so there's less of a barrier for her to break here and she's the clear world number one but it's a very open field. It, I think it's all it's always open yeah I think she she was in Brisbane with the United Cup I thought she played 
fantastic. She enjoyed that event. She was very loose, very comfortable, and I think a lot of players enjoyed starting the year that way because it's always going to be a little bit nervy after um, an off season. How you're going to start? But she she played fantastic. I th- I think she's definitely one to watch. Coco Golf. I'm curious to, to uh, of the Americans Coco Golf and Pagula in particular. Um, I think Pagula's had great results here in the past quarterfinalists. So I think you know she's one that could go pretty far. And Goff as well. They're on the same side. They're on the on the top half, and that's where Sviantec is as well. Um, I don't know. Madison Keys did well here last year. I know I'm kind of focusing on the Americans, but there, well, but, but there are a lot. And I want Jabur would be interesting to see how she do does here. I'm interested in you focusing on the Americans because you know we spent the the, the first 20 minutes of this podcast talking about how to market tennis and there's this massive market mm. in the US and there have been not many singles players in recent years certainly in the men obviously there have been the Williams sisters in the women but you know golf is clearly an icon in the making uh, Pagula is is good um, come to it slightly later in terms of the the top of tennis so in a way if we're talking about growing the sport of tennis for there to be a Grand Slam champion, singles champion from America, would be massive for the sport. It would be because there's so many sports in, in the U.S. I mean, there's a sport happening every day of the year. Um, but yeah, it would be fantastic. And I do feel like golf is one that um, you know could transcend not just you know not just the sport, just go into stardom because she's such a good speaker at such a young age, has a lot of other interests, um, and I think a lot of people enjoy hearing more from her, hearing her backstory, hearing what other her interests are and but yeah I think I think it would be great I, I mean we have Pagula and Goff and um the I mean the other one and Kate Keys as as I mentioned going off the U.S. the other one I would look at a little bit is Garcia as well who had a great end of the year obviously winning the WTA Tour finals and doing so well at the U.S. Open so she's one that's going to be pretty fired up I think and you mentioned Jabur in passing I mean if we're looking at promoting tennis I mean yes, the yeah. African conte- uh, right. continent and you've got the Arab world. Yep. And great personality. If she won a, a major, that would that be massive would be awesome. for those areas. Yeah. Always, always the narrative. I was going to say Garcia as well. I watched <laughs> her play in, in Perth and, and it's just picking up where she left off. There was no no hangover, nothing like that. She's primed and ready to go. One goal this year, win a major. She might do it first up. Um, Maria Sakari is another one. I mean, that's in. she's in the top half of the draw and, and, and yep, you and, and Arena Sabalenka. Um, but again, we could list 10 players, and this has been the narrative for a long time now, where you could say there's there's 10 players who would have a genuine chance of winning the title. And that's the thing that's so exciting, because we get to the end and we know that it's not just, oh, it's a clear-cut thing and it's going to be Swantec all the way. She might do that, but I think the thing that makes it interesting is how the draw actually starts to open up for players and, and how they start to build their tournament. And you get to quarterfinals, semifinals, and you've got that mixture of players who are right at the top of the game and then the contenders coming through, and it happens each and every time. OK, so it's exciting. Let's nail you down. Men's champion and women's champion. <laughs> Just for the record, Jill moved away from a microphone there. It's like, thanks, Jill. Yeah. Throw me out of the bus. We haven't even started the tournament yet. <laughs> so, uh, well, for me, I'm going to say Carolyn Garcia for the women's side. Um, yeah, I think that for that second half of the year was phenomenal. And from what I saw, the sample size at the United Cup uh, in Perth, uh, there is just kept going. She had a couple of weeks off. She went, this is going to be a long-winded answer, but she got went to Bali just to switch off, reflect. She went on her own, um, 
recharged the batteries, got straight back into training, jumped on a plane, came down here, and there's just, yeah, the, the continuity from this year to last year um, has been sensational. On the men's side, I mean, obviously, I'll be saying Djokovic, um, just on exposed form and, and what I've seen, um, with obviously a caveat that, you know, we hope that players like Runa, for example, or Corder, you now we're starting to see them get some more wins with some more regularity. Um, hopefully we get to see a bit more of that as this event goes on. But I'll say Djokovic and be terribly boring and leave the exciting exciting okay, so prediction to Djokovic to and Garcia. So Jill? I'm going to go All-American and go Pagula and Fritz. Right, okay. <laughs> now, is, is that the triumph of wishful thinking? Or... I think so. Right. <laughs> what gave you that impression? <laughs> yeah. I'm going Pagula and Fritz. I don't even have a... I don't even have a second option. I know I have a lot of options, but that's what I'm going with. Well, I'm going to be terribly boring here because I believe that Djokovic and Sviantec will end up lifting the trophies. I I would love to be far more interesting. So in order to keep it interesting, let's throw one more question out there. Which unfancied player is going to make an impression at this Australian Open. Well, one thing that I was going to say when we were going through the men's field and one prediction for the year, one thing to watch as a narrative this year to chart when we sit here in 12 months' time, I think will be um, looking at Chinese men's tennis because there are two players. Zhang. Yes, and Wu Yibing, who's had injury problems but has been highly touted, who are into the main draw here. And they, inside the top 100, made an impression at the US Open, um, Chris. Keep an eye on that through the, uh, the course of 2023. Um, in terms of some of the, the unheralded players, I'm not necessarily thinking that they're unheralded as such, but someone like a Lorenzo Musetti uh, is a player who's, you know, who are the players who are going to take the next step in their career? He could do some damage. He's in this part of the draw with, with Yannick Sinner. Cam Norrie is a player who's made gigantic strides in his career as well, sort of on the men's side. On the women's side, you've got so many different players. And, you know, it wouldn't be out of place if we had an unseeded player playing a seeded player in the final. I mean, that's that's just how close it is on, on the women's draw. And it's not just here, but it's week in and week out. And that's the thing that, that's exciting about it. Well, having been very boring about my uh, singles predictions, I'm going to follow the Jill Craber School of Wishful Thinking and say I am looking at Shapovalov and Musetti to do well simply because I think tennis thrives off contrasts in styles. And we need at least one of those two to be at the top for a while just to offer something a little bit different. I'm not just even thinking of the single-handed backhand. I'm thinking of the angles they find. I'm thinking of the, the flashing blade of the, uh, uh, of, of the way they fire those shots up the line. And the, uh, they're all court game. And I really hope that one of those two is going to make a statement here because I think it'll be great for tennis as well as good for them. I, I love their games. I both love Musetti and Shapovalov's uh, games. I think they're just beautiful to watch. And I think that's why I would throw Korda in there too because they're so smooth. Yes, absolutely. Just effortless in everything he does from his strokes to his movement. I love his game. So I'm, I, I think he will win a slam, like I said, eventually. I hope it'll be soon because I think he's fantastic. He's probably one of my favorites. Um, 
as far as the women, I, I mean, I don't know if we mentioned Sabalenka, but she just won a tournament. <laughs> so I know she struggled last year a little bit with some things, but I think it's an, important to throw her in there. The other one I really like is Ludmila Samsonova. I think she's a great player. She's very powerful off the ground. I think she's got a great attitude, and um, she had a good year last year too, so I think she's a really fun player to watch. I think Sabalenka struggled with the fact that Belarus was excluded from... Uh, middle part of the year and mm. I think I think she yeah. took that quite personally yeah and beware of the sister act coming out of the Czech Republic oh too. the Fruvitova sisters yes both both in the main draw here one coming through qualified. Brenda's 15 yeah qualified into the draw here this incredibly so it was very much watch out because um Linda who's uh in the same section of the draw she's as the elder sister the yeah. elder sister uh, made an immediate impact. They're from the Czech Republic. How many great players can they possibly have from one country? It's well, extraordinary. I was, I was actually wondering whether we might have another All Williams final, only be an All Fruvitova final in about ten years' time. Yeah, but because, get on board now because I think that there's going to be and and obviously we saw Noskova with um, her performance in in Adelaide um, too. How does, how does it keep happening? We need to we need to bottle this the way the Czech Republic does tennis. It's incredible. Okay, well, that's it for this week's podcast. My thanks to Peter McCarto and Jill Krabus. I'm Chris Bowers. We'll all be part of the live AO radio coverage over the next two weeks. If you want to listen to ball-by-ball commentary, head to the Australian Open website, ozopen.com, and click on the live radio banner on the homepage. And we'll all be back here, the three of us, next Sunday to look back on the first week of action and discuss how week two is likely to pan out. Enjoy the tennis, and thanks for listening wherever in the world you may be.